session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Free Play by Stephen Nakmanovich, Free Play, Improvisation in Life and Art. This was a book I got recommended to me by my brother. I believe the author is a violinist, um, but he writes about improvisation in life and art. My brother said it was a really interesting book, so looking forward to reading it. Again, Free Play by Stephen Nakmanovich. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is The End of Trauma by George A. Bonanno. The End of Trauma, How the New Science of Resilience is Changing How We Think About PTSD. And as a clinician, I'm so happy I read this book, but I highly recommend it for anyone to better understand the human experience and how humans deal with trauma or potentially traumatizing events. There was things that uh, I realized were biases I likely had related to trauma, which I will get into. And Dr. Bonanno has done decades of research on trauma and shares some of his insights in this book about what we've gotten wrong about trauma or what we tend to get wrong about trauma and also some insights into what seems to be beneficial in our response to trauma, which I will get into. So starting first with the misconceptions or how we see trauma, generally we think that, okay, if someone went through an event that we'd consider traumatic, they faced a natural disaster, they experienced some kind of abuse, they had some other life-threatening type of an event, we think it's likely or more likely they're going to get trauma. That's the mindset that we tend to have and the mindset that's been presented by mental health professionals and what we see in the media and what we tend to expect. And as he shares in the book, after 9-11, there was this outcry and this warning from mental health professionals and uh, city officials and uh, governmental officials were worried we're going to have this huge spike in PTSD and in mental health issues related to the 9-11 attacks, especially in the New York area, but also across the country, as everyone was essentially traumatized by this event. However, what was found, as is often found, and he describes the research in the book, is that most people don't get traumatized. There wasn't this huge rush of individuals experiencing PTSD that lasted for a long time. Certainly people were greatly affected the day of and days after, and it took some time for that to slowly go away. But most people did quite okay. And that's what the research shows, that two-thirds of people do just fine after what could be considered a potentially traumatic event, which means most people. So if you experience something that could be potentially traumatic, 
more than likely you won't develop PTSD-like symptoms. And so that's something that for me as a psychologist, I recognize that I did have this bias towards expecting a traumatic type of a response or a PTSD type of a response after a potentially traumatic event. But it was eye-opening to recognize that this is what the data show, that it's not that way. It's actually quite the opposite. So for me, that was interesting and important to note. Also, when we look at those types of studies, especially right after something traumatic happens like 9-11, you can look and they might say a huge percentage of people are experiencing at least one symptom of PTSD. But the thing is, symptoms of PTSD can also be things like um, feeling fatigue or having trouble sleeping which many people experience anyway. I read the book last week, Why We Sleep uh, by Matthew Walker, and we see that most people aren't getting enough sleep. So any day you ask people, how are you doing sleep-wise, most people will have that symptom of not sleeping so well or not getting enough sleep. So we have to be careful about looking at, well, do people experience a symptom of PTSD or some symptoms of PTSD and a full-blown diagnosis of PTSD, which itself even has changed over time, how we define and describe and diagnose uh, the disorder. But it's important to note that it'll make sense that you might feel more anxious for a while after you experience something potentially traumatic. That's to be expected. That might even be part of the healing process, what you need to go through to get through that rough time. But it doesn't mean that you necessarily will develop uh, this PTSD or be dealing with these symptoms for the rest of your life in some significant way. So that's something important to keep in mind. And why might this be the case? Well, there's several reasons, but one is something we we call uh, the availability heuristic. So especially for a psychologist, for example, like myself, we tend to see individuals who come in and if they had a traumatic experience, they're now here to get help related to that traumatic experience. So it seems to almost create the sense of causality or a direct correlation where if you've experienced something potentially traumatic, you're going to have these debilitating or distressing symptoms after the fact, because that's what's available to you, because that's what you've seen. However, you don't see the two-thirds of the people that don't need such help or who aren't experiencing those extreme symptoms. But because you don't see them, they're not available to you. So when you consider the likelihood that someone will experience a traumatic type response or a lingering traumatic response to a potentially traumatic event, you will tend to overestimate that likelihood. So as I said, that to me was something important and interesting to keep in mind. Now, as I mentioned, George Bonanno has done decades of research looking at trauma And as he describes, resilience is a term that wasn't always talked about or discussed or really established when it came to the field of trauma, but has become much more prominent and much more researched and discussed, which is essentially the strong response or healthy response to uh, something, a challenging event or a potentially traumatic event. And what people often look for when we are seeing who's resilient, who does well after a trauma-facing challenge, we usually are looking for something that's fixed, these fixed characteristics that explain and tell us who's going to be 
not traumatize and do quite well and recover well and show resilience? And who is going to actually suffer more after this trauma or potential trauma? And the truth is we're not very good at making these predictions, that it's hard to predict because there is this type of resiliency paradox that although there are factors that we can find that help tell us who is likely or what type of characteristics help people build or have resiliency in the face of a trauma or a challenge, all of these different characteristics, first of all, there are so many, so you can't really have all of them, and you don't even probably need to have all of them. But also, even when we have all these slices of the pie, as he talks about in the book of trying to explain resilience, we still see that over half of what explains or what is happening, we don't know exactly why. So it's not that if you are just this way and this stable trait will get you through any trauma or you won't develop PTSD, or if you have this trait or if you have social support in this way, you won't develop PTSD. A lot of these factors can definitely play a part and can be helpful, but it's hard for us to fully explain what's happening, what's causing some people to be resilient, what's causing people not to be, what are the characteristics that are either going to make you be resilient or not. It's not so clear cut and black or white. It's a lot more complicated than that. And as he explains, and I'll likely uh, talk about later in the show, there's not a single characteristic, a single coping mechanism that is always good. Everything essentially has costs and benefits. Everything essentially can be good in some moments, but bad in some other moments and won't be useful. And so this is where we arrive at what he describes uh, is this key concept of flexibility, that that is essentially what help us explain better or understand resilience in a more complete way. So he describes two aspects of the flexibility process. The first one is a flexibility mindset, which as he he does mention that there's some way we can make parallels with um, a growth mindset. Carol Dweck came up with that uh, concept, as you might be familiar with. But a flexibility mindset has three components to it, which I will discuss. So it has first is optimism about the future. So these are the three interrelated beliefs of the flexibility mindset. Optimism about the future. The second is confidence in our ability to cope. And the third is a willingness to think about a threat as a challenge. So we need to have optimism about the future that I can Things will get better. It doesn't mean I know for sure, but it means we have a positive outlook or we're hopeful. So we're optimistic about the future. We're confident in our own ability to cope. I believe that even if you don't know what it's going to take yet to get better, feel better, or to survive this, you have confidence in yourself that you can do it. And also, rather than looking at what you're going through as a threat, you see it as a challenge. And that way you can almost get excited or motivated to do it rather than you feel that it's a threat that you can't withstand that will overtake you. So that's the flexibility mindset. But then also related to that is what he calls the flexibility sequence. And so this also has three components. The first 
component of this flexibility sequence is context sensitivity, which means first we have to be able to assess what it is that we are going through or what is it that we're feeling. If we don't know what the situation is and what the situation asks of us, we can't then figure out what to do next. So we need to have some level of what he calls context sensitivity so that we can understand what's going on. Next, once we have this understanding of what's going on, we need to know what to do. So this is the second step of the flexibility sequence, which is called our repertoire, meaning that now based on what the situation is and what it asks of us, we have to look at what tools we have in our disposal, what is it that we are good at that we can then use towards helping ourselves in this situation. And then lastly, the third and final step is called feedback monitoring. So what this means is that we are taking action, we're doing things to try to help ourselves, but we have to pay attention to, well, is this working or not? And so even here, to me, this really speaks loudly to this concept of flexibility that you need to be recognizing, okay, I'm doing this thing, but is it actually helping? And if it's helping, then good, let me keep doing it. If it's not, then I need to potentially change course. And not only that, we have to now, you know, it goes back to the beginning of paying attention to what's going on with context sensitivity. As things change, we have to be flexible to recognize maybe it'll ask something else of us. And so this is why flexibility is such a key uh, theme in this understanding of resilience is that it's not that you just do one thing and you keep doing one thing and that's going to work. It's that as time changes, you change, the situation changes, what you're going through changes, it might ask different things of you and very likely it will. It'll make sense that the same things you were doing won't be helpful throughout the whole time. And he shares some specific case studies where you, or case stories in a way, when you really get to know some individuals and what they went through. And you can see this play out more clearly of how it's this um, flexibility that really makes or breaks us in that way that we can be make it more likely that we get through the trauma or the potentially traumatic experience better. So as I mentioned, it was really eye-opening for me to recognize that Yes, PTSD, first of all, is still very real. Now, of course, the way it's diagnosed, he talks about that in the invention of PTSD. But still, people do, at least about a third of people, will have a bad uh, experience or something around that will have a bad experience. But it doesn't mean, again, it's most people won't. So it doesn't mean no one is going to have a very bad traumatic response, that it's not real in some way, um, that they're exaggerating what they're going through. It's a very uh, real thing that people have these very, very distressing and painful responses to trauma that can unfortunately keep uh, affecting them in a negative way. But it could be important to recognize how that this also could be part of the optimism that you go through something traumatic that more than likely I won't develop PTSD. I go through something challenging or potentially traumatic. It doesn't mean that I will then because we think, well, trauma, potentially traumatic, PTSD has trauma in it. That's what's happening to me, not necessarily. And throughout the book, he also, uh, you know, as he talks about these different components of the flexibility process, which is the flexibility mindset and the flexibility sequence, uh, in the end of the book, he does get into more, can we teach these things to people? And it does seem that we can help people become more flexible or to learn about this. Now, a lot of it people do unconsciously in the stories he describes. 
people who were doing these things. It wasn't that they knew the next steps they were doing or that they were reminding themselves necessarily to be flexible, um, but it seems that they were unconsciously doing that anyway. But there does seem to be some evidence that we can teach others and we ourselves can think about these things, which I think is important for us to do now. Hopefully you won't face anything potentially traumatic, but it's not that it's just for extreme traumas. I think these, uh, this whole process, this flexibility process is something good to maintain in life and the challenges that we inevitably will face day to day, even if they hopefully don't reach the level of something potentially traumatic. Uh, and if they become a type of automatic sequence for you and process for you, then if you ever do face something that is more potentially traumatic, hopefully you'll be more prepared to face it in that same way. So it's not just a specific trait or one way of being that's going to make you resilient. It really is more about flexibility, not just flexibility in the passive sense, but that we actively are engaged in a flexible way of understanding what's going on, trying things, getting that feedback and continuing that process. Now we're at a commercial break. I want to not necessarily continue on the book itself, but some of the themes in the book that I think are important for us to keep in mind. And the last segment, I might share actually about my own experience after 9-11 being about a block away, a city block away from the Twin Towers on that fateful day and with some of these uh, concepts in the book in mind. So let's take a commercial break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. So I was discussing the book, The End of Trauma by George A. Bonanno. Um, and I wanted to mention something. I mentioned two thirds of people and how many, the, the, I, I think I said one third end up experiencing PTSD, but it's actually about two thirds experience resilience. So 62% to 73% across a series of studies experience the resilience trajectory. Um, and then in that one third, some experience a recovery or what they they experience some symptoms, but then get better over time. And then others experience some chronic symptoms. So within that one third, there's that split. So two thirds of people tend to actually show resilience, meaning that they might show some very minor symptoms right at the beginning or some symptoms right at the beginning, but after that, um, they're doing quite fine. So again, could be different than what most of us, including myself, might have expected the numbers to look like. So I think this is a great book. If you're obviously a mental health professional, I highly recommend it. I think it can be helpful for anyone really to understand an aspect of humans and the human experience. And I wanted to talk about two of the themes that I already discussed, but in more detail that I think are really important for me from this book. One, that term flexibility in response to to resilience and related to that is this concept that he very beautifully brings up in the book that no quality, no characteristic personality trait, no coping mechanism or strategy is always good. There's always cost and benefit and there's always uh, timing that will determine in the context, and that's where that context sensitivity part of the flexibility uh, sequence comes into play, that will determine whether something is good or bad. And so they are they are definitely related concepts. So the first one about flexibility, it's something just to keep in mind for ourselves as you you go through your lives. We tend to, I think, not be very flexible. 
because we find strategies that have worked. We find mindsets that have worked. We even find self-limiting beliefs that I wouldn't necessarily say work in the sense that they're best for us, but somehow have served us. And we tend to become rigid in the ways we do things because we're creatures of habit. We are creatures of comfort. In general, we don't like to face new things. And so because of that, we like to do things the way we've done them and what's worked. Well, it's at least worked so far. Life has been okay. So why would I change it? Or the way we interact with people, we might have a certain persona or just express certain characteristics or personality traits that we think are good, not realizing that probably being more flexible is going to lead to better outcomes in our lives or how we um, interact with certain individuals. If you always act the same to every individual you meet, even the same individual might require and will require different things from you, you will be limiting what you are capable of. So this theme of flexibility or the concept of flexibility to me is a really critical one that's not just about responses to trauma, but it's about life in general. And we have to actually evaluate ourselves and recognize, am I being flexible or am I being too fixed or rigid about things? Am I handling things in a way that's always the same way? Am I expressing my feelings in stereotypical ways that become rigid that are the same? Another way of looking at this is, for example, depending on how you define masculine and feminine, sometimes people think, well, I should be, if I'm a man, I should be masculine. If you're a woman, you should be feminine in these strict ways. And I know some people have, are not happy when we look at um, things becoming more fluid, but I actually think that is towards progress. It's not that we have to make men women and women men or define them in certain way. What I always strive for when I talk about things like uh, gender roles, gender norms, gender identity. It's not that anyone has to be a certain way, but actually the opposite, that everyone has the possibility, the freedom and the flexibility to choose how they want to be. And I would actually go further and say, I think we all would do better if we didn't think of ourselves in a fixed way anyway. So you might identify a certain way, which has its own valence and uh, significance for individuals, which I understand. But in general, I think we have to be aware that if we create a rigid identity, we actually will be limiting ourselves in lots of ways too. So we hopefully will maintain some flexibility, even if you identify a certain way, because all characteristics and all traits can have value depending on the situation, what is asked of us, what we are feeling. So many different factors can determine that. So that to me was a very important theme, looking at flexibility and how important that is in how we live our lives. People tend to look for certain traits that if you always are this way, you're going to be fine. You're going to be happy. You're going to be successful. You're going to be healthy, whatever it might be. But really, there are almost never these rules or characteristics that are always good, that you should always follow. I think a lot of times we want to let something do the thinking for us. Sometimes we turn to someone, a guru, a god, a religion to think for us, tell us what's good and bad, and we just follow them. Or if we don't have that, or even if you do have that, sometimes we also look for some type of ideology or strict rules or ways of being that if I do this, life will be good and I will be good. 
But the truth is, rather than thinking we're on some kind of fixed course, really, we're like someone on a tightrope. And we have to continually assess our balance and how we're doing and keep moving forward. And there isn't just one way of doing things. We have to constantly take in all the elements around us and within us and respond to the situation in a flexible way, rather than think we can just find a way of doing things that works and then never have to think again. We constantly have to feel and think and feel and think, reassess uh, what's going on and see what the world asks of us and what's best for us. So that flexibility is really key. And then so related to that, as I was saying, this concept I thought was very beautifully put in the book of how no characteristic is all good or all bad. And they all have some pros and cons and all can be good and bad depending on the situation and a variety of other factors. Even the way we cope with things, you know, as psychologists, we'll talk about healthy coping mechanisms. And I think there's definitely something to be said about generally more healthy ways of dealing with things versus more unhealthy ways of dealing with things. I think he has a term, he brought it up in this book that he's talked about in other books and other uh, academic writing of coping ugly, that although it's not something you'd recommend, sometimes when you're really going through it, you might cope in an ugly way or something that's not generally recommended, even let's say getting drunk for a night. Um, so you wouldn't say that's a good way to cope generally, would not be something your therapist might recommend or you'll hear from someone who is promoting what we'd consider healthy coping mechanisms, but sometimes it could be what someone needs or something that helps get them through a time for a moment or something like distraction. Uh, I think usually distraction and avoidance we think of as bad things. And I think overall, if you live a life of distraction, that could be problematic and many people do, but sometimes it might be the best thing you can do. You're waiting on test results and there's nothing you can do about the test results. Maybe you can prepare for what happens, but you don't know which way to prepare. So you might think about it a little bit or have some idea of the options, but there's not much you can do. So actually in that moment, if you can distract yourself and avoid thinking about what's going on and waiting for the test results as much as possible, it actually can be a quite good thing and probably the best thing you can do rather than thinking, well, no, I don't want to avoid it. I want to keep worrying about my test results. Well, you're probably just going to hurt yourself and not make any progress anyway. So I think that's something also to keep in mind, that we're also thinking of things in black and white, good and bad. This is good, this is bad. But rarely is that going to be the case. Even something like optimism is good, but if you have extreme and blind optimism, you might miss real challenges and real issues that you need to look at. You can actually become too unrealistic in your optimism, and that's not good. So it's another thing that we have to keep in mind related to flexibility is that it in a way reinforces that concept of flexibility that if I keep in mind that no thing is all good, I have to be willing to be open to look at my situation, see what it's asking of me, and based on that decide how I want to respond, how I want to act, because it's not going to be just one way of doing things. And so this also is, is true for things like personality traits and how you 
are in the world. You might think you should always be this way, or this is a strong way, this is a weak way, this is a good way, this is acceptable or not acceptable. But really, again, it's less about finding the pure good and the pure bad, but finding what's right for that certain circumstance or situation that you are in. So I really enjoyed that concept and these themes that came uh, through in this book, The End of Trauma by George Bonanno, because it was interesting for me that people are looking for these things. Okay, resilience is these five things and that's it. And if you're these five things, you're going to be resilient. Well, it'd be nice and a lot simpler if that were true. But as he describes in the book, the research doesn't show that. There aren't these few things that work all the time. And even the things he describes in the book and the flexibility mindset and the flexibility sequence, yeah, there are some things that are like optimism and confidence in your abilities to do things. But really, it's also about the flexibility, meaning that you are constantly looking at your situation. When you look at the flexibility sequence, you have to see the situation and respond to it, see what you can do, and then pay attention to how that's going. You can't just stick into automatic pilot and not look at how things are going and think you will get better. So we need to be flexible in our lives and also recognize that no qualities, no characteristics, even any coping mechanisms, we can't think of them as all good or all bad, always the right thing to do. We have to look at each situation as it comes our way, like someone on a tightrope. We have to maintain our balance. It's not something that you achieve and then it's a fixed state. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in discussing the book, The End of Trauma, I mentioned uh, 9-11, September 11th. And so Dr. Bonanno was in New York. I think he had just started teaching in at Columbia in 1999 or a little bit before uh, 9-11, September 11th, 2001. And so it actually allowed for them to do some research on individuals who were in the New York area and what they went through. And so I myself, uh, I talked about it last year in great detail, the story of being just a, a city block away from the World Trade Centers um, that day, that on September 11th. I was there with my brother and my cousin. We had actually gone to see a concert, and we were supposed to leave to fly back to Los Angeles on uh, September 11th that morning. Of course, we could not, and then we had a whole experience that involved several days in Staten Island, and then um, a few more days in upstate New York when we couldn't leave, and finally got back home. And I won't get into all the details of my own experience, although reading one of the chapters of the book looked at three different people who were somewhere, two I think were in the building, one was getting close to the building, or I think was uh, around the building at the time of the attacks, and they shared their experience of what they went through. And so it's these three different individuals, um, Will, Ava, and Reina, if I'm remembering, but they're they're likely, I think they're not real names nonetheless. But anyway, you, you see their stories of what they went through. For me, that was actually... It was interesting. I wouldn't say it was it was triggering in a way, but some of what they went through was similar to what we went through, although we were a block away. Things like going to Battery Park and then also the reaction or the feeling when the building, the first tower collapsed. I remember thinking it was another 
plane coming and we were all there in Battery Park and the fear in my mind was that they were going to crash a plane into all the people here now to kill thousands of people there in one second. But then soon after, I heard that the someone said the top fell off was what I heard. Maybe all they could see was the top of the building was no longer there. And within seconds of them saying that, I saw the rush of the smoke, with the, the dust, smoke, whatever it was, all the, the debris that you probably have seen videos of that then covered us and, and all of that. So hearing and reading these stories, uh, of those individuals was um, very intriguing for me because I could see some of those similarities of, of what I went through. So as I mentioned, there was this fear that people would be experiencing PTSD and we'd see it in numbers we've never seen before in response to the attacks, especially for people who were around, and I, I would be included in that, on the, the day of the attacks. And so these three individual stories we we see in the book as he describes an understanding that it's hard to predict when you read their stories sometimes you might think you know but it's really hard to tell which one of them went throughout these different paths one of the uh, resilience meaning almost no symptoms one of the recovery meaning some symptoms early on but then getting better over time and then the the worst outcome of chronic symptoms of PTSD. And so we don't really know, or it's hard to tell based on the stories, who would experience what, because I think the person who actually was resilient was the most, the closest to one of the explosions or was high up in one of the buildings when the, the first plane hit. So um, it, it's hard to predict who is going to be okay and who won't. But I'll come back to my own experience and what I went through. So I did experience that closeness. I did see some um, some things that were bloody, you could say, at, at a minimum. There was bodies, part. I think it was body parts. I still can't understand what it was exactly that were covered, I think, by, by emergency personnel so that they wouldn't be seen. I did also see something that was really quite uh, heartbreaking and very intense, um, people jumping out of the building. So when we we're walking to the elevator to go down to the lobby. They had asked us all to go to the lobby. I looked out the window and more than likely this window was framed this way where it was exactly the World Trade Centers about a block away. And then I could see someone jump out and that was just uh, I, very, very uh, hard to see and quickly made me understand the gravity of the situation. I remember actually seeing it up close or seeing it really obviously live in person. It felt almost more fake in a way, which is hard to describe. Maybe it was I was depersonalizing or it was just hard to fathom what my eyes were seeing. But anyway, I did see some things that were quite um, graphic or really dealing with death, but we were not in the towers and we uh, soon we're going away from them and the the day was very stressful uh, of course all of that that happened then we were forced to get on the ferry by forced i mean that we, they were told that they're evacuating the island so we had to leave and we were at the ferry station that went to Staten Island and then getting a hotel uh, there was only a few hotels there in Staten Island and so we're sitting at one trying to get a room finally we did late at night and so i remember going to sleep that night 
And so if we look at some of the symptoms of PTSD, sometimes things like nightmares or disturbances in sleep is one of them. I definitely experienced that. I remember having very violent dreams that first night in particular. Uh, things like a thing, I think cars crashing. I don't remember the details of the violence, but I remember it was just some violence and also some bizarre dreams of like friends and one of them I remember was actually kind of funny in a way it wasn't anything violent it was just kind of a funny dream but there was just some you know definitely a dark night of sleep and so the next day I remember still being in a haze I think one thing that was really helpful for me was being with my brother and a cousin because we definitely are and still were and are still very close. And so that social support was very, very valuable. I don't know what I what I've went through if I was alone. Let's say so either we got split up or if I was on this trip alone and I was going through all of this, I think it's likely I would have experienced more than uh, more negative symptoms than I did related to this potentially traumatic event. But I know that we were together. Um, even we did laugh and joke at one point this scared our moms that they thought people might see us laughing and think we're happy about what was going on. And so it wasn't that we were in this jubilant mood, but here and there we would uh, joke with each other and have fun. It was a very dark time. Uh, if you were in the United States at that time, and again, we were in New York now on Staten Island, people were still afraid what's going to happen next, what's going on. It felt like the world had changed. So it was a very dark time. But I know that being together, to me, was probably the most important uh, component of how we all did after what happened. But again, knowing that two-thirds of people will do quite well, even after a potentially traumatic event, maybe even without that, we would have been okay. Or you might think two out of three of us would have been okay. But nonetheless, for me, that was a very significant part of doing better was to be together. We had each other. So we felt in that way safe and okay, and we try to just enjoy ourselves in whatever way that we could. But really, if I remember what I felt, yes, the next days, feeling scared, feeling anxious for us was also the sense of when can we get home? We just wanted to get away. At that point, I was 19 years old. So, um, you know, was, I just wanted to get back home and feel more comfortable. So that part made it a little bit more challenging that we weren't home. But um, again, being together, there was some sense of home by having one another. But I don't remember feeling too much more other than that, other than that, that tense. I don't remember having, thankfully, flashbacks or any kind of intrusive negative thoughts. I maybe had some that could be quite natural to have some of that. You can even think that we should have some of those, you know, the way our brain is working, although it's not just to feel good all the time. If you went through something potentially traumatic, it can make sense that your brain is going to want to really remember that vividly and might even in some ways want to remind you of it. Hey, watch out for this. Now, of course, in this case where it's a terrorist attack, there's nothing for me to necessarily prepare for or defend myself against, but we can understand that the brain can't really differentiate that and is going to want to let you know, hey, don't do this. Or imagine if you were at a cliff and you fell off, if you're thinking about going close to that cliff or just in general, it would make sense that your brain might want to remind you, hey, 
Remember that cliff? It's really scary and dangerous. We don't want to go there. So I don't remember too much about those specific days in the as far as having intrusive thoughts, but I don't remember much of that. And so as scary as it was, and that day, we really did feel like at moments we were running for our lives. Even actually, I remember having this fear of getting trampled as everyone was when the first tower was collapsing and there was so much noise and everyone was just scared everyone was just running away from the towers I still remember my cousin and I um, I think quite if I can say so uh, wisely hopped kind of behind a tree or we got like there was a tree close by so that we wouldn't be running and we wouldn't get trampled I don't think anyone did thankfully but anyway there were definitely times where we felt our lives could be in danger. We felt a threat and the whole situation felt that way. And you didn't know if there was going to be attacks afterwards. But nonetheless, I don't remember having um, such a bad response afterwards. And so in some ways, I'll consider myself lucky. Still, many people will have a pretty bad response. But when I was reading the book, it had me reflecting on what I went through on 9-11 being close and I remember thinking well it could be something and I remember hearing that people will um, be experiencing PTSD and most people will or the expectation was that so many would I do even remember hearing that back then this was I was still in undergrad all the way back then um, before I was really studying psychology more seriously but nonetheless I remember hearing about that and he talks about in the book how during the COVID pandemic we had a similar um, fear or response. Now, I definitely think the pandemic has had big mental health impacts. And it's something that I might talk about soon about different things I've noticed for different types of issues or diagnoses, things like anxiety or depression, and how the pandemic has, I think, affected them and impacted them based on what I've seen in clients and people in general. Um, but we also saw that when the pandemic and still about the trauma that we're all going through and that this is going to lead to some huge mental health crisis. And I think there has been an impact. I don't know the specific numbers, but again, it might have been overblown to think that it was going to lead to something catastrophic in a mental health sense. I think we tend to be more resilient than we realize. Of course, there's things we can do to improve those chances, and it's definitely not to take away from the negative impacts that things like the pandemic has had, of course, on physical health and, and deaths there, but also on mental health, obviously. Um, but I do think it's a good thing to keep in mind that we might worry more than is really what's happening with some of these situations where people respond better than you might think. So I thought that was interesting. And it's been in uh, nice for me as I've read books during the pandemic, of course, the ones first in the pandemic, even if they were brand new, couldn't include the pandemic because, of course, to publish a book takes some time once the fa final manuscript is completed. But in some of the books I've read recently, you, you see that, and he got to talk about that in the book and that how there was this, what could be considered too much fear of the catastrophic mental health impacts that were going to happen with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I think what we did observe and, and still see, especially at the beginning, though, this heightened anxiety, which was understandable. We were living in a much more uncertain world. 
Uh, we did have also things that many people in the United States never experienced, things like supermarkets running out of things, uh, especially toilet paper. That feels like a long time ago now. But things like toilet paper and even food and other goods became harder to find. And so there was this uncertainty. And also, of course, this disease and who is it going to affect? Is it going to kill us, loved ones? That was scary and is still there, but it was brand new. And so that made it really scary for us. How long we would be in lockdown, how it was going to affect us personally, economically, the world economically. And so these things are still there. But I think it was understandable that the world was experiencing heightened anxiety because uncertainty leads to more anxiety. And so strangely, we've, we're still in an uncertain time because we're technically, I think, still in the pandemic in the sense that we're still living a very restricted life compared to what we were living two years ago, but we have adjusted to it in some ways. And I know it's been also a long time since we used to hear, well, I can't wait till things go back to normal. Uh, I do think we still want that, but it does seem like that normal might take some time or there might not be a normal like it was a few years ago. That's hard to tell. But I think it's important to recognize the resilience that we can show and we have shown through this. Not everyone has had to go through it the same way, but I think we've all shown a resilience or overall that, that is quite commendable. So I thought that was also an interesting point he brought up in the book and in reflecting on my own experiences and for yourself, you might want to think about have I gone through something that would be considered potentially traumatic? And even that wording can be important to keep in mind because if we call something traumatic, really we're, we're thinking more about your response to it. So that's what makes it in that way traumatic or not. So we say potentially traumatic because it could have been, but not everyone, and we even know most people won't be traumatized by it. But it's important to look at, you probably have experienced something. And it doesn't mean it hasn't affected you. You might still have some mild symptoms to it, or you might experience PTSD, um, but you might see that in your own life. And lastly, to conclude the show, I also want to make sure, as I mentioned, it's not to minimize or to uh, deny the experience and the existence of PTSD symptoms that people can have for years and that there are treatments out there. So if you do have or you do know someone who is experiencing some kind of PTSD-like symptoms and response to a trauma, could be new or old, uh, there are treatments out there and also some new treatments that are um, being researched, including uh, medications or drugs that you might not think of for PTSD or for uh, psychological purposes, but help is out there. So I hope you will seek out help. PTSD still is something that many people suffer with and is very real. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.